This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman comics from a humanist perspective and examines real life through the lens of a Superman fan. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 56. Truth and justice, my friends, and welcome back to the show. This episode, I'm going to be a little ambitious with what I have planned for today. I'm going to aim for three episodes. Uh, but when I get done with the second one, I'll see how much time I've got left. If I'm a little short, I will go on with the third. If I'm right at an hour or a little bit more, I'll go ahead and, and tack it on. But, but we'll see. I, I do plan on doing three episodes. So tentatively... Um, I plan on covering Super Sons number two and Trinity number seven, uh, both cover dated March 15, 2017. And time willing, I'm going to cover Action Comics number 977, which is part one of the two part Superman Reborn Aftermath arc from Action Comics, which is cover dated April 12, 2017. And I'm taking all kinds of liberties with the usual format of the show, because those of you that are listening for a long time will know I usually do a Superman-specific issue first and then do um, kind of a Superman family thing second, and I usually go in publication order. I am flip-flopping things all around. I'm going with March 15th with the Superman family books, and then I'm skipping over some stuff at the beginning of April to jump into Action Comics. Uh, technically, Superman number 20, which is cover dated April 5th, would come next. But that jumps straight into the, the merged continuity that we see, that we established at the end of Superman Reborn. And this short art of Action Comics kind of explains how that continuity works. So I want to jump into it first. But before I talk about some comics... I have, as always, some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Now, those of you that follow me on Twitter will know that I tweeted out um, admittedly kind of snarky tweet uh, Saturday evening that um, I'm kind of ashamed of how many likes it got. Um, and and some of you asked me to follow up with the story of that here on the show, which I'm going to do, but this is probably not going to go in the direction that you think it might. So, um, for context, um, my daughter and I got invited to a social gathering from this past Saturday. And I was dreading going. Uh, one, I, I already had something to do, something I had to do on Sunday. And I was really hoping to get like one day of the weekend just to stay home and chill out. But that didn't happen. So I was kind of bummed out about that. Two, it's a social event, um, and that sometimes kicks up the social anxiety a lot, especially if I don't know the people very well. And three, with where I live, 
in Florida, I usually go into social events unless everyone there kind of wears their ideology on their sleeves, assuming that they subscribe to a ideology that's contrary to my own, which is a really accurate assumption 90% of the time. So we go to the party and my daughter goes off and she hangs out with the other kids and I make small talk with the parents. And uh, right away, one of the dads establishes himself very much a, a geeky pop culture person. So I have a lot to talk about with this guy. Um, but I can kind of tell right away that he wears his ideology on his sleeve and it's opposite of mine. So I'm like, okay. But I was really nice. And he starts off the small talk, noticing my Superman hat, because I need a haircut. My hair looks really bad right now, so I wore my hat. And he says, oh, a Superman fan, huh? I'm like, yep, I'm a really big Superman fan. I've been really into Superman for a couple years now. I even do a Superman podcast about it. That's how much I like Superman. So he tells me, oh, well, I don't really read comic books that much, but my favorite superhero is Deathstroke, which popped up a little red flag. Um, because my continuity nerd took, you know, kicked in right away. And, um, because if, if you've been, if you're a Patreon subscriber and you've listened to some of my coverage of Panic in the Sky, you'll know that I, I am not a fan of Deathstroke. I think he looks really cool. Um, I like him as a villain. I think he's an excellent villain. And I like the fact that at least since, at least since, um... New 52, um, DC has been leaning into his villainous roots. I'm, I'm sorry if you got a little little buzz there in your recording. I'm silencing my notifications now. Um, but he's definitely not a superhero, in my opinion. Um, and then he goes on to explain to me why Superman is not a character that really works for the the real world. I'm like, okay. And then he tells me that the Snyderverse version of Superman is. Um, and again, I, I, I kind of like the Snyder movies. I don't have anything against them. They're not really what I'm looking for from a portrayal of Superman. But I will have to admit that... They are probably accurate about how um, the real world would react to Superman. But it did put me off a bit. Um, and and then this guy goes on to say some other things about why he likes um, Deathstroke. And uh, that kind of aligned with his personal ideology, which, which was not... Uh, something I prescribed to, but I, I, I was, I was very polite. So this might be where you think I go off on this guy for his ideas about Superman, but it's not. So let me put a pin in this part of the story and move over to my daughter's experience in the party. My daughter had a really, really good time. And I should say, that this that this dad and the mom were super nice the whole time. They were never rude. 
they were never disrespectful. They went out of their way to make sure my daughter had a nice time. Um, they even took into our account some of our our uh, our dietary restrictions and some of Christmas medical health issues. They're very very nice. I have nothing but respect for how this couple acted at the party, and I, I do not want to say anything negative about them. Um, my daughter had an excellent time, and she made a new friend there. And I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the show or not, but my daughter is kind of obsessed with the idea of Dungeons and Dragons. She has done a ton of research on how to make characters. Um, she is in a online out school class that is a Dungeons and Dragons game. Um, it's basically a science lesson dressed up as a, as a D&D game, which she, she loves. And she researches the monsters and she draws them and she draws the different types of characters and so forth and so on. She's reading the Forgotten Realms books, especially Dristo Erden. Uh, she wants to dr- read the Dragonlance book. She is a full-on fantasy kid. And she made a new friend who plays D&D. So, hooray! Um, and they're going to meet, maybe meet up at some point because they both are in the same orchestra. They're in different classes in this orchestra group, but they're both in orchestra together. They're going to meet up, and they're, they're maybe going to hang out and learn how to play D&D. And so the next day, my daughter starts doing some more research, and something she hadn't really taken into consideration was character alignment, which got me thinking about character alignment, and of course it doubled around to how that relates to Superman. And if you Google... What is Superman's character alignment? You usually get to you usually get to responses that in the Golden Age, in the beginning of New Fifty Two, he was chaotic good. Um, in the Silver and Bronze Age, he was lawful good, and there's a, there are examples of since then how he could be considered neutral good. I tend to subscribe to the belief that Superman is lawful good. And I actually had to struggle with this one because I am not someone who thinks that, you know, the law should be blindly followed. Not that I prescribe to breaking the law, but I know that there are, there are some terrible laws out there, especially ones that relate to women's health, women's reproductive rights and LBGTQ rights and so forth. And those laws I don't agree with. So I don't believe that following the law blindly is a good thing, or at least, you know, believing blindly that all laws are good just because they're laws. Let me, that's probably a better way to phrase that. But I got researching it more, and I, it, it, some of the people that broke down alignment, because again, I'm not a D&D player, but I, I know some stuff about it. Some people that broke it down said, well, there's two ways you can look at it. Either you lean more towards lawful or you lean more towards good. And either way, you believe that the law should be there to protect people and help people and reward those who act justly and punish those who act unjustly. Um, And you can either lean more towards the lawful side, which is where you may choose to enforce the law at... um, in, in which something unfortunate may happen to an innocent person, or you choose to ignore the law in a way that helps a good person, but overall you still believe the laws are intended to be good. And I believe that's how Superman leans. And so I got researching more and more and more about lawful good, and 
and about how you know a lawful good person um, you know not only tries to help others and tries to be a an example to others but how they they are not quick to pass judgment on others and that's where I caught myself from going the direction I was planning on going with this talk um, and I put myself in this other person's perspective this other dad's perspective because they're they're younger than me I would say this couple's probably 15 years younger than me and I remember how I was 15 years ago and even though I like to think of myself as a lawful good person now at the time I was probably lawful neutral I was working in a jail um, my perspective is that the law is is neutral as far as morality and the law simply is what it is and it doesn't take into effect good or bad and I have grown as a person since this time and it it also got me thinking about when this other dad started talking about the Snyderverse what he liked what he or I should say what he perceived about the Snyderverse and why it's good is why I like Superman in the comics. He started talking about how he likes the Snyderverse because Superman in that world, or at least as as he saw it, was a symbol of hope. And how even Batman in that world, who is like who starts out branding people and, and so forth is is eventually comes back around to being a symbol of hope and, and both of these characters and Wonder Woman are are there to inspire people into into um, help them see a better way to do things I was like okay well so I and I didn't say this at the time because I didn't really want it to be I didn't want it to be seen as an argument but I got to thinking you like you know, you like the Snyderverse for the same reason I like the comics. So we're really, at least as far as that goes, not too terribly different. And if there's hope that someone can see Superman as a symbol of hope, then there's hope in general. And I hope that <laughs> I hope that all of that makes sense. Um, I am going to try to remind myself to be a little less judgy and to um, be an example or try to be an example of what I think of Superman-like behavior is and maybe you know some of some of that will rub off on somebody else and it'll continue on down the line and if enough people are examples of of idealistic um, ethical behavior, then maybe we can all eventually come together. But that's all I have to talk about that. So let's go talk about some comic books. All right, let's get started with Super Sons number two. This issue is written by Peter Tomasi with art by Jorge Jimenez. Yay! Alejandro Sanchez is the colorist and Rob Lee is the letterer. 
Jimenez and Sanchez did the main cover, and Dustin Yuen did the variant cover. Um, so the main cover is uh, John and Damien in their their respective super suits, and John is lifting a robot up over his head, and he's kind of ripping it apart, and there's electricity crackling out of it, and he's got one foot raised up on another robot and firing heat vision out of his eyes, and Damien almost looks like he's riding another robot that is that is crackling with electricity as it's been split open and throwing a pair of bat shuriken into another. And then behind him with his hands crackling with Kirby dots is Lex in his Superman armor. And the variant cover, uh, Bai Nguyen, who, by the way, is, uh, if I'm, if I'm thinking of the right person, this is my favorite inker for Doug Mankey's pencils. If I, I think that's who this is. Um, but it's a very, it's a very different art style. It almost looks like colored pencil. And it is uh, our super sons standing and sitting triumphantly on, po- on top of a pile of broken robots. And Damien is sitting on one part of it, almost like on a throne, and then John is standing on top of the pile with one leg raised, you know, standing higher on something else, and his hands on his hips, and his cape blowing in the wind. Um, I would probably go with him in his cover, because I really like Jorge Jimenez. So a little bit of backstory. Um, John Kent and Damian Wayne have become best frenemies uh, through the training that their dads put them through. Uh, recently, Damien discovered uh, that there was a break-in at LexCorp, and he has decided to go investigate, and he has drugged John along with them. Although, as they were scaling the side of LexCorp Tower, they were busted as Lex flew up behind them in their armor, demanding to know what they were doing. Meanwhile, there is a family who lives in a weird like TV sitcom uh, house studio inside of a warehouse and um, one of the sons, Reggie is horrible to everyone else in the family and we don't know why and we don't know who this family is and we don't know why the rest of the family is so terrified of Reggie but as we go into the issue we will find out because we go to that warehouse and we go to the uh, sitcom studio house and Reggie has split himself at least into three parts. He has made Jamie Madrox style duplicates of himself and one of them is sitting on the coffee table in the middle of the living room studio while the others fan out looking for the rest of the family and Reggie says he's there playing hide and seek. But as he finds each member of the family, he kills them. He strangles his older brother. He beats his dad to death with a television, beats his mom to death with an iron. And the, um, the only one who isn't killed is the younger sister, Sarah, who escapes. She takes off running and Reggie in uh, his duplicates or maybe their hive mind or whatever refer to themselves as Kid Amazo. Now from there we go to 
LexCore Tower in Metropolis, where John and Damien are dangling off of a bat line uh, outside of a window while Lex hovers behind them asking, so which of you is going to explain? And John is saying, oh God, oh God, I'm in so much trouble. And uh, Damien just continues to berate Lex, saying he can't find a, a, a cure for rampant alopecia. At which point, Damien reaches up, grabs John by the foot, yanks him off of the line, and throws him down the side of the building, and tells Lex, by the way, the kid can't fly. So Lex snaps the rope that Damien is still holding onto and holds onto the rope and pulls Damien down with him as he goes to grab John. Damien, however, lets go of the line that Lex has and simply shoots another grapple line up to catch himself. Lex flies down, grabs John right before he smashes into the concrete, and meanwhile Damien has climbed up to the top of the roof. Lex demands that John explain who he is, but John kicks uh, kicks Lex in the face and says, We're nobody! Meanwhile, um, while Lex is chasing John, Damien has entered through the roof of LexCore and, and is leaping down an elevator shaft, and he comes out into a lab. And he says to himself, Okay, knowing Kent's speed, I've probably got 20 seconds at best, so let's use them wisely. So out in the alley, John thinks he's lost Lex, but then Lex finds him and grabs him up. And John tells a whopper of a tale that says that uh, we broke out of uh, St. Mary's Orphanage to meet the greatest hero of all, the man who made himself the Superman of Metropolis. And Lex goes, oh, really? Then why is your friend currently planting explosives in my lab? So Lex zooms them into the lab where Damien is busy uh, hooking up a very conspicuous bomb. And John's like, hey, buddy, I told him about how we're orphan- orphans from St. Mary's. And uh, and Damien's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lex uses a Iron Man-style chest beam to blast the bomb that uh, Damien was planting. And Lex says, I'm giving you two whelps to the count of three to tell me why you're planting a bomb in my private lab. And Damien says, and I'm giving you to the count of five. And Lex says, and why is that? And Damien says, to find the other 11 bombs. And he presses a button. We see like a bunch of little ping, 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 pings and green lights going off um, as Lex shouts no. And Damien runs forward and slides between Lex's legs, grabs John, and grapple lines them back up to the roof. And... um, and they get to the roof, and Damien says, Well, by now, Luthor knows those, those weren't really explosives. Um, and he says that the digital imprint that Damien found leads to Star Lab, so with that in there, too. Um, they drop onto the roof, and uh, Damien says, Well, I have to say, I certainly was right about you. You make a terrific distraction. And... Um, and John's like, look, you know, we need to go tell our dads what's going on. You know, we're going to be in trouble. And, you know, you think you're so hot, you're not even a half-decent Batman. And Damien, faking a gun, says, you're right, I'm better. And he holds up his tablet, showing that he is downloading the LexCore, LexCore Complete Security Log. So several minutes later, they're in the alley. John has gotten them snacks. And Damien is poking through the security footage. 
And he says he was right about the break-in at LexCorp. Here's our guy. We see it is our young psychopath named Reggie. And, um, and he's focused on an android laying on an examination table. He does, some, does something to it, and then the camera feed goes dead. And so um, Damien says, we have a face and about 175 more hours of security camera footage to watch. It'll take a week or so to sift through it. Um, he tosses the, the tablet to John and yanks a cover off of his Robin-themed BMX bike, which does look pretty cool. Um, and while he's monologuing, John says, hang on, I got something. I found our guy, lots of them. And he pulls up security footage from four different cameras, all set to 930. And there's a different version of Reggie on each of them. And Damien's like, how did you? And John says, well, I have super good eyesight. I just know. (laughs) So I think it's pretty funny. And so he points out that there's Reggie in the building, four different parts of the building all at the same time. Um, and by now, by now, John is like, look, we really either need our dads or you need to go get the Titans. And we need more than us to figure out what's going on. Um, Damien shoots a grapple line at the wall next to John's head to make a point. And um, Damien says that he's found out that the kid's name is Reggie. Uh, and he tells John, you've got super eyes. I have Batman's facial recognition database. I'm not going home yet. And he pulls up an article from the Daily Planet. And we see Reggie's face. And a lot of it is garbled. But the part you can read says, Some Amazovirus survivors retain powers. Reggie Myers, age 14, from Providence, is one member of a superpowered family that still retains the powers gained during last months. And then it blurs off again. So, um... John hops onto the back of Damien's bike as they go zipping out into the countryside. Um, and they are zeroing in on, um, uh, let's see. I'm not sure. How did they find it? How did they get in this place here? Um, let's see. I don't think it says how they knew to come to this place. Um, but they've driven out to this warehouse in the middle of nowhere. And uh, Damien is talking about, according to this article, the kid and his entire family were powered up by the Amazovirus last year. And the editor's note says, The Amazovirus is a synthetic plague created by Luthor using the power-stealing android Amazo. It has diverse effects on its victims. And Kellex tells me that that is a storyline that took place in the new 52 Justice League title in 2014, and I have not read that far in the new 52 yet, so I will learn more about that when I learn about it. The car that is next to me in the parking lot is playing its radio very, very loud, so I'm hoping they're listening to a podcast, I think. Hopefully, you guys won't pick it up, too. Okay, they're pulling out now, so okay. So hopefully... I'm not getting the broadcast of somebody else's podcast in the background of my podcast. Um, but uh, John says that that his dad says that everyone lost their powers when it was cured. And Damien says, my father says your dad is not a details person. 5% of survivors 
kept their powers. This entire family did. They got some attention around town as a new superhero team, but they disappeared. No mention of them for weeks. Um, and so, um, Damien is scoping out the building, talking about it looks like aluminum ribbed steel with anchored cores at the roof corners, strong but hard. Once we once we get up there, we'll use a mini acetylene and burn it. And John's like, hey, genius, details, and he points that the front door is just open. So the two of them walk in, and John's like, look, we really need to get our dads. And Damien's like, nope, there's no way I'm handling this over to the league. I'm not handing this over to the Titans. Um, he says, Bruce is already all over me about the Titans. I need something for myself. And um, John says, so what am I here for? Just to bail you out when you mess up? And Damien doesn't answer and just says, I don't mess up. And um, Damien says, uh, it says the family disappeared after a battle amongst themselves on the streets of Providence. They had a history of arguing even before the Amazo virus, at which point John finds the bodies of the dead members of the family. And John's like, okay, for reals, I'm calling my dad now. And Damien's like, no, you're not. This is my case. And John just tosses Damien aside. And he says, you're crazy. People are dead. He jumps up, punches through the roof and jumps like a bajillion miles away. And as Damien climbs to his feet, he says, fly away, crybaby. This investigation is open. So John lands out in the woods and he says that he feels like he's going to be sick. But then he sees someone crouched down hiding. It is, by the way, the sister. Um, she's, she's got her back to a tree. She has her arms around her knees. She's, she's crying. And John says, hi there, I'm John. Uh, Superboy, did you run away from the warehouse? And the girl says, yes, I did. And John stands over here and says, I promise I'm here to help. At which point we see a shadow looming up in behind John that appears very much to be Batman. And as Damien pokes around the warehouse, he sees that there are five chairs, but only four bodies and someone's missing. And as Damien is saying to himself, I don't need, don't worry, I don't need your help. Get running back to your daddy. We see that there is a shadow looming behind Damien that very much appears to be Superman. And that is where the issue ends. Um, not a ton of story to this so far. Um, I feel like this is a very much decompressed story um, where it's stretched out to fit a longer story arc. But the art in it is gorgeous. As I've said, I love Jorge Jimenez. He will be the main artist on the... Justice League series that launches after Dark Knight's Metal. Um, but we're a little ways away from that. We're probably close to about a year and a half away from that publication-wise right now. So it's going to be a while before we talk about it. Um, but the dialogue is really good. Um, I love the back and forth between Don and John and Damien. Um, I love the banter with Lex. It's, uh, it's you know, not my favorite comic ever. I... It's a little light on story, but it's supposed to be a light-hearted story. So I'm okay with that. It is a, it's a good read. If you get a chance to check, if you haven't read this series so far, uh, if you have the app, if you can buy it on Comixology or get it in back, use, back issues at your local home book shop, I highly recommend you do so. 
So I'm going to take a minuscule break, and then we will come back and talk about Trinity number seven. Okay, Trinity number seven is written by Colin Bunn uh, with pencils by Clay Mann and Miguel Mendoza. Uh, sorry. Uh, Clay Mann and Johnny Desjardins did the inks. Brad Anderson did the colors. Steve Wands did the letters. Uh, the main cover is by Clay Mann and Steve Downer with the variant cover by Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, now, the main cover is really, really cool. It is these these images of Rachel Ghoul, and yes, I do say it like the animated series pronounced it, so I don't I don't care <laughs> how anybody else does. Um, we have Lex in his Superman armor and Cersei, uh, which is a very different look for Cersei, and I really like it, and I'll talk about it more when we get in. And then in the foreground, kind of tumbling down through the ether, are Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And it's a really cool cover. Um, the one by Sienkiewicz is amazing. Of course, it's Sienkiewicz. Um, but I can't help notice that uh, Lex looks like Vin Diesel in Super Lex armor. Um, Rachel Ghoul looks like Doctor Strange, and Cersei looks like Amora the Enchantress. So it's, but it's a gorgeous color cover, and you've got all these like pink and orange and yellow energy spiraling out of Cersei's hands. Um, it looks it looks great. It's a I still like the main cover better, but it's it's really cool. So we open. At the Great Ruins, 60 miles from the Kandaki border. And in these ruins is a temple. And we have a bunch of ninjas sneaking into the temple. And they're killing the temple guards. And the temple guards look cool. They're in these red, almost ninja-like outfits themselves with these long hoods. And they wear these gold masks that have two faces. And it's like the faces, like... It's like one face looks to the left, one face looks to the right... And then people see out of the right side mask's left eye and the left side mask's right eye. It's really neat. Um, but the ninjas are clearing the way for their lord and master, Ra's al Ghul. And um, we see as Ra's peels the golden mask off one of the guards, we see he's a really, really old guy. And Ra's dialogue says, This is the dominion of the dead. And although I traffic in death, I have never had great patience for such monuments to mortality. But there is something here, something that has called to me. I've seen this place in a vision, in a dream, and Rachel Ghoul does not dream lightly. There is a mystery to be uncovered within these walls, something worth dying for, something these men have squandered their fleeting lives protecting, and I reject the idea that the dead can keep secrets from the undying. And there's all these stone statues around, but then one of them, which is a huge statue, comes to life, reaches town, and grabs one of the ninjas and just squishes them. And uh, I apparently all the other ninjas have scattered. So because we, we see just a race in the middle, staring up at the statue, and he draws a scimitar. But then, as the statue reaches down for him, Lex flies in in his super Lex armor, and he smashes the statue. 
And Lex's inner monologue says, my armor's filtration system cleanses the dust of bygone ages from the air, purging the antiquity from the environment so I don't have to breathe it in. I have little interest in the relics of this world. I find the technology of other planets far more effective. So both Lex and Raish are dismissing the purpose of this temple. They're both um, saying that they have no use for it. Uh, Lex has no use for ancient history and uh, race has no use to monuments to death when he himself cannot die. So Lex and race have a moment and they trade barbs at each other. Um, Lex calls race an eco-terrorist, a mercenary and Lord of the League of Assassins. And race calls Lex the man who would be king masquerading as a Superman. And basically race says you you better watch how you talk to me because I have people killed for less. And Lex says, you, well, you better, watch, you better watch how you talk to me because in the past I have had people killed for less as well. But they're not about, uh, they're not there to trade veiled threats and insults. Uh, but they both comment that they uh, have been summoned here and neither one of them appreciates being summoned. Um, so they go deeper down into the temple and Lex comments about how all of Lex's ninjas have been killed and Ray says that they were the most expendable of my followers and they came here knowing I was going to sacrifice them. They came here willingly um, and he says that a secret is of little value if everyone knows it which Lex takes as another veiled threat. Um but again, Lex says, you know, I'm, I'm not here to argue with you. Uh, we've both been summoned and I want to figure, I want to find out who has the moxie to attempt such a, such a thing. At which point they find Cersei. And Cersei in this looks amazing. All right, her skin is almost grayish white and her hair is bright red and it's done in three braids, one down the back, and then two that hang down the front. And she's wearing this long uh, white skirt, and then she has this black and red corset. And I may have mentioned in the past how uh, I find the goth aesthetic somewhat attractive on members of of the opposite gender. Um, That is... that. That may or may not be true. Lexi, but Lexi, Cersei looks amazing. By the way, she has yellow eyes. Uh, she looks great. Uh, who? Uh, big props to Clay Man on his design here. I'm becoming a huge fan of Clay Man based on his art. And uh, Cersei's inner monologue says, Mortals, one has abandoned the very concept of death. The other has done everything in his power to seize the gift of the gods. My, uh, but they are still men of flesh and blood, flawed, malleable to my will, and in this case, necessary for my plans. And um, Raish notices that there are these bubbling pits all around Cersei, and he asks if there are Lazarus pits. And she says, no, these are the Pandora pits. And she goes over the legend of Pandora, and we see the new 52 version. He wears kind of the pinkish red a full body suit in the hood who ran around with a pair of pistols uh, doing something and who got uh, basically obliterated by parties unknown 
in the DC Rebirth one-shot. And how when she opened the box, um, several demons came out. And we see that one of them is Etrigan. And we see the other, another one is Trigon. And, um, and how we see... And then we see a panel with the Joker, Gorilla Grodd, Cheetah, Scarecrow, Poison Ivy, and Killer Croc. And Cersei says the malicious forces she unleashed have certainly adapted to the world around them. And Cersei says that we, some might even say that we three are products of Pandora's box. Um, um, but she says that some of the evil she released was elated to be free, but some looked out upon the world and was horrified. The innocence of mankind was too awful for it to look upon. And um, the evil that escaped but was afraid fled into these pits. And she says there's power in there waiting for those who can master it, for those who are unafraid to gaze deep into its depths, to gaze what our own weaknesses might unleash. And there's a bubbling and a big whoosh. And then this thing steps out of the pit that looks like a three-way cross between Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, where the left side of its torso looks like Superman, the right side kind of looks like Wonder Woman, uh, half of his face looks like Superman. Half of his face looks like Batman. It has Wonder Woman's long hair. It's wearing Wonder Woman's kind of armor skirt thing. And it's carrying the lasso of truth around its neck. Or it's carrying the, la the lasso of truth, but one end of the lasso is wrapped around its neck. And we get three internal monologues as they see this. Ray says, three pits, three beings of great power, great desire, one horror made flesh. Lex says, the waters of the pits, somehow reacting to second resonance, stitching raw genetic material together. And Cersei thinks, a test, a test to prove ourselves worthy. And so Lex is like, well, enough of this crap. And he blasts the creature, but it shrugs it off. And uh, Cersei says, the beast won't die easily, Lex Luthor. It represents our demons, demons we must face if. But then the lasso goes around Cersei's neck and... Cersei, as she fights the creature, all she can see is Wonder Woman. She sees Wonder Woman rushing toward her with her shield raised and her like her sword in the other hand and her arm raised back. And Wonder Woman, by the way, is wearing her New 52-style costume in this one. Um, and as it turns and attacks Raish, it shoots heat vision out of its eyes that takes the form of bats, which is pretty neat. And all Raish can see is Batman from that famous, that classic Bronze Age arc where uh, where Raish was introduced. And he and Batman sword fight out in the desert and Batman takes off his shirt and his cape but leaves his mask on. Um, and then Lex runs in and attacks it. But all, can, all he can see is what appears to be New 52 Superman lifting Lex in his green and purple armor up about to body slam him or something. And so the three uh, malefactors, let's call them antagonists, because Lex is trying to not be a villain in this era, but he is still some somewhat of a thorn in Superman's side. They decide they all need to work together. They need to do the power of anti-friendship. And so Lex blasts it uh, with a like a repulsor beam from the palm of his glove 
and Cersei attacks it with sorcery, and Ra's al Ghul just throws his sword at it, at which point the creature sinks back down into one of the pits. And so as it bubbles away, um, Lex says, I am unsure, Cersei, that such power truly belongs to anyone. These pits are not meant to be tampered with, and the benefit they might provide is far outweighed by the dangers they represent. Best to destroy, and he pulls up a little cannon from the gauntlet of his glove, and Rhaes is like, careful, Luthor, you cannot be sure what destruction the pits might unleash. But Cersei's like, wait a minute, I need to show you guys something. So they go into another chamber, and she says it is quite possible that none of us has any choice in this matter. And there is a centuries-old carving in the walls of Lex standing there in a tunic, and uh, Ra's al Ghul is to his right, and Cersei is to his left, and they're giant-sized looking down on scores of adoring, adoring worshippers. And this issue is almost kind of a one-off, because we don't get a follow-up to this for a while. Um, after this, we're going to get a Superman Reborn Aftermath tie-in, and then we get a... Uh, goodness. We get a four-part arc with the rest of the Justice League, and then some stuff with Dark Magic, and eventually we're going to get to an annual that doubles back around on this story. So it it's a little weird. Um, and I don't think Colin Bunn... No, Colin Bunn does the next issue. He does the Superman Reborn tie-in. But it goes back to Francis Manipole and goes back and forth to Rob Williams for a bit after that. Um, James Robinson does an arc of Starman fame. And so this book very much has a rotating cast. Um, And I I think Bun, I guess he wanted to start something that he knew he wouldn't get a chance to finish right away, but he at least planted the seeds for it, which I do uh, very much respect. But again, beautiful art on this one. I, I, again, for the, if nothing else and for the art alone, Highly recommend that you look this one up on the app or on Comixology or at your local comic shop. So I'm going to take another break. I'm going to run an ad. And then when I come back, we are going to talk about Action Comics number 977. Stick around. And we're back with Action Comics number 977. And this issue is written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ian Churchill. Hi-Fi did the colors and Rob Lee did the letters. Andy Kubert and Brad Anderson did the main cover. And Gary Frank and Brad Anderson did the variant. And both of these covers are super cool. I love Andy Kubert, by the way. Um, it's going to be a while, unfortunately, before I get to talk about Up in the Sky. I will probably get to talk about it on Anthony Anthony Desiato's Digging for Kryptonite before I get a chance to talk about it on my show. But I I have been a fan of Andy Kubert since the late 90s when he took over the art on the Heroes Return era Captain America series. And his work on Superman is really, really good. Um, But we have 
Superman in the foreground, pulling open his Clark Kent shirt and jacket, exposing the S symbol, taking off his glasses, running toward the reader. On the bottom right, we have an image of Superman and Lois holding newborn John. Above that, we have an image of Clark and Lois kissing at their wedding. Above that, uh, we have an image of Superman in his classic costume with the trunks flying, holding the American flag. Um, on the left-hand side of the page, on the bottom, we have Superman in his... Um, it's the belt of the Rebirth costume, but the but it has the red boots. So it's somewhere in, in the middle. And then at the top right, we have him in what appears to be the Rebirth costume, shattering kryptonite chains as an homage to the beginning of the Kryptonite No More arc from 1970. And, of course, um, uh, Lois and Clark holding baby John is a reference to um, the Convergence uh, two-parter that we talked about on the first episode of this show. A uh, reference to the wedding. Superman flying holding the flag is a reference, I believe, to the Christopher Reeve movies. Um, so, yeah, very good homage cover. Very cool. Uh, the variant is of Superman floating cross-legged in his fortress, surrounded by crystalline structure, watching um, an image of Krypton exploding in his rocket flying away, uh, with him looking very pensive and contemplative. Um, and, in the, and in the Gary Frank cover, we can see that he is actually wearing the Reborn suit, uh, because it has the classic boots, but it has the red full belt with the yellow belt buckle, the gold belt buckle. So uh, let's do a quick bit of recap. <laughs> um, so short, I'm assuming moments before Flashpoint happened, an unknown force split Superman and Lois in two, energy-wise. And um, I would say that the lion's share of that energy, I would say 60%, maybe 70 of each, stayed behind in a pocket dimension and continued on as they did before Flashpoint with all their memories and histories intact. And the other 40 or 30% went on and were restructured by the new continuity of the new 52 universe. Um, if you want to find out what happened to Superman and Lois, uh, uh, the part that stayed behind with the pocket universe continuity, start with episode one of this show because I'm not going over all that again. Uh, but recently, um, Mr. Mixus Pidlick uh, hijacked Lois and Clark's son, John, and in an effort to help get John back, the two halves of Superman and the two halves of Lois merged, uh, and when they merged, their continuities merged with them. And so did the continuities and memories of everyone close to them, which catches us up to where we are now with Clark Kent at the Daily Planet. And even though I'm not going over this again, Clark has not been with the Daily Planet the entire time that I've been doing the show, starting with Convergence. And he's, he's sitting in his, uh, what, at his cubicle, I guess, 
and there's all kinds of post-it notes up on the background. Uh, reserve table at the Swan, a reference to Kurt Swan. Uh, there's one that says Carlin called again, uh, in reference to an old editor. Um, there is a book by Siegel and Schuster on the bookshelf next to him. Um, let me see, let me zoom in on some of these. There's a Journaling 101, Editing Made Easy. I think that's pretty, pretty funny. Um, and Perry's fussing at Clark because the, the, he's been holding up the presses for an hour and Clark's like, well, um, the legislature, that's what happens when the legislature wastes to vote at the last possible minute. And Perry says, that's why you got the story. You're the fastest typer I know. And Clark says, really? I thought Lois was the fastest typer. At which point Lois walks up. And a while ago, I covered the issue of Action Comics where um, Reborn or, or Rebirth era Lois slots herself into the life of her post-Flashpoint counterpart. And she was wearing a purple jacket with a white top underneath and like this necklace with a big gold medallion on it. This panel homages that cover very, very well. So a nice little callback. So we're learning that the events of Lois and Clark not being at the Daily Planet never happened. So things are slotting back into place. But as Lois and Clark walk off, walk off. Lois is like, you seem distant. And Clark says, I feel uneasy. Uh, call it a haunting feeling. It's hard to explain. It's been gnawing at me for days. And Lois says, yeah, ever since Mix's pit, Mix's pit looks weird attack. And he's like, Clark's like, yeah. But the weird thing is, I can't remember exactly what happened during the attack. The, the specifics are beginning to blur. And... Um, Clark says he's going to go look into it. So he's not going to be home later. He asks Lois to kiss John goodnight for him. Um, <laughs> they walk up to the elevator. She, I think she gets on. The car goes, the elevator car goes up. Clark waits. He pries the doors back open and steps into the elevator shaft, uh, pulling open his shirt. And then flying up out of somewhere <laughs> from the Daily Planet building, we see him taking off into the sky. And we get this splash page by Ian Churchill of Superman flying over the over the buildings of Metropolis. And I've mentioned before, I used to really, really like Ian Churchill's artwork on cable in the mid-90s. Um, in retrospect, it is a bit over the top. But then again, it was mid-90s Marvel. So I think that's, you know, it's... it's maybe what you get at that time, but I did like that era of Cable because he was lying, relying less and less on big guns and relying more on telekinesis and being less about being a mercenary and being more about being a pro-mutant adventurer. So anyway, um, we get a cutscene from there. We get an interlude with, and it just says elsewhere, and we have this black, all-black background with Metallo being hung from dozens and dozens of wires that are extending cables that are extending out of his body. He's just a head and a torso. His arms are hanging from somewhere nearby and there's cables extending out of his arm sockets and out of where his lower half of his body would be and out of his back. And there's his kryptonite heart 
is suspended in front of him. So something is keeping him alive. We don't know where he is. I assume it's some kind of prison. But if it's like a, an actual like governmental prison, this is cruel. Because he's just... He's basically in sensory deprivation. But then a voice says his name, John Corbin. And he says, been a long time since anybody spoke to me. And the voice calls him Metallo. And then we see this holographic figure appear before him. And it's very, like, when you see images of computers in the Matrix movies with the with the code scrolling down that's supposed to symbolize that is what the matrix code looks like that's what this is it's like that only red and instead of gibberish code it's latin now a while ago i screenshotted this and said does anybody that speaks latin know what this says because i don't have the patience to go through every one of these words with google translate and and a bunch of people replied to me says yeah it's real latin but it's word salad but still it looks really neat and again it's red in his features so we can tell it's supposed to be male but that's it and um uh, the hologram tells Metallo that Superman's responsible for his condition, and he assumes that Metallo wants revenge. Metallo's like, I don't need your help. And the hologram says, well, you're, the solo approach doesn't seem to be working for you so well. And Metallo's like, what do you want? And so the hologram somehow takes control of Metallo's arms. Now, when we get to the revelation about who this hologram really is next at the end of the next issue of this series. It's kind of it's kind of going to make sense how he can do this and it's kind of not. And hopefully I'll remember to double back around and talk about it. But he somehow or uh, again not somehow, but using kind of sort of his innate abilities begins to reshape Metallo's arms and he says he's repairing him. And he says, reassembling you would only replicate the weakness that allows Superman to beat you. Thanks to me, Mr. Corbin, you'll get a whole new body. From there, we go to the Arctic, where Superman is going to his one and only Fortress of Solitude. He flies inside, and and he's thinking, a few days ago, Mrs. Pidlet kidnapped John. We got him back, but my memory of it, how it all went down in the strangest of circumstances is less than clear. One thing I do know is that a force beyond Mixus Pidlick, even more powerful than him, temporarily fractured aspects of our reality. Everything seems fine. Our memories of the past should be just as they should be. Why do I feel like something is missing? And so he flies up to the Sunstone Crystal Bank, and he says, tell me everything. And um, the computer system says, of course, can you be more specific? And he says, show me the details of my life from the beginning. And we get... Now we get Superman in the middle of this massive, like, uh, holodeck-style projection of Krypton before its destruction. And we see this mix of styles that combines the John Byrne era with people in the full body suits and the the toga-like drapings and the big headdresses on the women. And then we get some that are, like, the Silver Age version and then we get some up close that are the new 52 version, which takes aspects of the John Byrne, but but kind of accentuates them and makes them more stylish and more um, more like a hedonistic society almost. 
with little Kellex style robots flying all around. And this, to me, is a callback to the new Krypton arc um, in the late 2000s, where Krypton, where, not Krypton, but um, 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 Kandor is enlarged, all the people are free, not, and, um, and, and, and they set up their own society on the far side of the sun or on the far side of the moon, one of something nearby. <laughs> um, and it talks about how all the different castes of Kryptonian society um, wore these different types of outfits. And I think that's pretty neat. Um, and we see Jor-El and Lara, who I think that is supposed to be the post-Infinite Crisis version of them, where Lara has this long, flowing blonde hair, and Jor-El has this graying black hair with a graying black beard, and he's got the headband on, which is somewhat symbolic of the Silver Age era, and they're going basically through the story that we all know of the Destruction of Krypton, where, of course, the Council won't listen, and he's built a rocket, but because space travel is forbidden, he was only able to build one, and it's only big enough for the baby. So from there, we go to Cinder Rock, New Mexico, where we have Blank. And Blank is a villain that was introduced by Dan Jurgens in this era. He has chalk white skin. He has long chalk white hair. He wears all chalk white clothes. He is a powerful telepath. He only speaks with telepathy. And he is a powerful telekinetic. And he's sitting in a large, ornate chair on the back of a pickup truck in the midst of this town that he has all but destroyed uh, with the townspeople giving him tribute. And he says, you call this tribute, you'll bring me more, or you people won't be around long enough to beg my forgiveness. And the holographic figure appears before Blank. and says, I'm here to contribute to your art. You desire two things. One, create your art of violence on the biggest, widest canvas ever conceived. Two, for Superman to be the subject of your art. And Blank asks, who are you? The holographic figure says, your death, your art is death itself. Your canvas, the world. Allow me to ex express a symbol of admiration for your work. And he makes the truck that Blank is sitting on run over all the people that have gathered there for tribute. Sorry, I had to stop and have a sip of coffee. Have I mentioned I drink my coffee black with absolutely no sugar now? I read something somewhere that says that people who drink their coffee black are psychopaths. I, sorry, I don't subscribe to that. I just don't like milk in my coffee. I don't like the way it tastes. And by now, I don't really like sugar that much. I don't have much of a sweet tooth. But Blank tells them that this, this expression of art by running over all these people is not too bad. And the holographic figure says, any true fan knows the type of art his favorite subject might attempt. Indeed, I know of your talents, both telepathic and telekinetic. I understand your violent visions and dreams of turning them into reality. Join me, and you'll have the opportunity to do exactly that. And um, after this, we are going to get a story arc that I've read a couple times. And again, at the end of the next issue, we're going to get the revelation of who this holographic figure really is. And... I had some reservations ab about it. Um, 
it doesn't seem quite to track given other things that we've learned about that character since. But here, it's really doubling back around to what we knew about that character from way back in the day. And I know I'm speaking in circles because we haven't read this yet. I don't want to spoil it. But just keep in mind that the more I read of this, the more the later revelation makes sense. So we go back to the Kryptonian archives in the fortress, and we see that the rocket that Dorel has built is very reminiscent of the one from the New 52 era. And just as Doriel comes in to tell Laura that the Science Council has again rejected his, his science, Krypton starts blowing up. And um, again, this is not new territory, so I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time going over it again. But there's a, there's a kind of funny scene where Dorel uh, is placing baby Cal in the rocket ship, and the only hair he has is the spit curl, and he's got a pacifier in his mouth, which I think is just funny that Kryptonians would have pacifiers, and the baby just looks like, oh, well, what? And it's pretty cute. And then, of course, we get the scene of the rocket taking off um, as Krypton explodes, and, um, and then we get this image of, uh, like, the, the explosion becomes the entire hologram that Superman is surrounded by. So all we see is his head as, you know, filling up this superimposed over this massive, you know, green and black explosion as we see the rocket zooming off into the distance. Um, and then the hologram changes to um, to the Kent farm just outside of Smallville where we see the rocket is landed. We see Ma and Pa come running up. Again, not, to, not new territory, although I have to say that um, whatever age Ma is supposed to be in, in this era, maybe she's in her 30s, Ma looks super hot. <laughs> I got Ma looks like she's maybe in her mid-30s. She looks great. And that's all I'm going to say about that. You'll have to go look it up for yourself if you want more details. And then we get images of, of Clark's youth growing up in Smallville. We see him walking with Lana and Pete, Pete Ross, through the halls of the school and Pete has his left arm in the cast which I am pretty sure is supposed to be a reference to the Secret Origin miniseries which is Jeff Johns's post-Infinite Crisis retelling of the origin because there's a scene where where Clark's playing football with Pete and Pete just runs into Clark and breaks his arm and there's the scene of there's an image of young Lex with lots of hair holding up a, a massive thing of kryptonite in a jar and Clark saving Lana from a tornado, uh, which is when she became aware of his powers. And I, I think these are all references to Secret Origin. So it's, it's really interesting that Jurgens is going not with the version of Superman's... Uh, not not the version of Superman that he wrote, but the post-Infinite Crisis version of Superman, which, you know, might have been an editorial mandate. It might have been Jurgen's choice. I don't know. And then we get um, a shot of, of basically a splash page. Where it's Again, it's still 
the hologram. So we have Superman just kind of standing there looking up and looking around him. But the hologram is of Metropolis and um, the, the images of several people he knows. Perry, Lois, Jimmy, Ron Troop, Steve Lombard, and a lady with a rad-looking afro whose name I do not know. I apologize for that. And then as the hologram begins to dissipate, Superman says, There's no question that's my life, just as I remember it. So why do I still feel so unsettled about all of this? And um, Kellex says, uh, or, or not Kellex, but the computer system in general says, Understandable given the way Mixus Pitlick, Mixus Pitlick masqueraded as Clark Kent and insinuated himself into your life. So that still happened. So that's... I'm not sure how to how to work that in because the reason that, that Mixie was able to pass himself off as, as Clark is because Clark was laying low and was only coming out in public as Superman. So it's very... I, and I don't think we really get an explanation for that. So that's just one of those things where you're just going to have to take it with a grain of salt. And Superman says, it's more. Mixie spoke of another, someone who exists out there that's beyond Mixie's Pidlick. And then we get a separate word balloon that just has a green squiggle in it. And Superman goes, huh? And he says, Kellex, that other voice. And Kellex says, you require something, Kellel. I heard no one. And Superman says, I could have sworn. And Kellex says, we are alone here, Kellel. Of that, I am certain. But then we do a close-up of one of the sunstone crystals, which is purple. And we see a humanoid figure either reflected in it or radiating from it. Now, the next issue of Action Comics goes into more details about how the two continuities were merged, which I think is really, really interesting. What I would love to have seen from this era is um, a miniseries, about six issues that go, that is basically a Jurgens. Re, reborn era version of Secret Origin that goes from beginning to end how these two continuities have become one and I would love to see I would love to have seen it bring in a little of post-crisis a little of post-infinite crisis a little bit of New 52 and a little bit of rebirth and we get some of that in the next issue but man I want more <laughs> But this is a really good issue. Um, Churchill is not my favorite artist on this series, um, but I do. I don't. I think his art, his art's still really good. I think the uh, the Kubert cover just spoiled me though, because again, I just absolutely love Andy Kubert. And if you're gonna have your writer who is arguably the most prominent in the '90s do do an issue that's kind of like well let's let's do flashbacks and then to have another 90s artist do the cover and then have another 90s artist do the interior i think that's really cool um i would just love to have seen Kubert do the whole thing <laughs> but anyway um that is it for action comics number 977 yeah i did it i got all three issues in and i did it about like how I wanted to. I wanted to do about 15 minutes each on the first two and about 30 minutes on this one, which is what I accomplished. 
So I am going to take one more tiny little break and I'll be right back to wrap everything up. And that does it for episode 56 of Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. Now, if you're saying to yourself, man, I really enjoyed this episode. I really like this show. How can I help support the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast? Well, you can do that at my Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. And for $3 a month, you get at least four episodes a month. That's less than a dollar an episode where I talk about my favorite classic post-crisis Superman stories. And for most of those episodes, I do one issue per episode. For the first few, I did entire story arcs, which took forever to get an episode out. So now I do one episode a week. And I very recently went issue by issue through the death of Superman. And then I did a two-part overview of Funeral for a Friend. And this week, I will be talking about one of my single favorite comic books of all time, Adventures of Superman number 500, which is the bridge between Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman, which I will be starting on next week. And if that sounds good to you, and if you'd like to hear uh, other stories like in like a breakdown of the Pocket Universe Superboy story from 1987 and the Supergirl saga from 1988 and Superman in Exile from 1989 and how Clark revealed his secret identity to Lois and the secret of Luthor's brain and Panic in the Sky and all kinds of stuff. Go ahead and visit patreon.com slash truth, justice, and hope. Subscribe and you get a bajillion tons of content and it's a pretty good time you should check it out um if you would like to support the shows in other ways you can do so by leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcast you can follow me on social media at the at the uh, truth justice and hope a superman podcast facebook page you can find me on instagram at truth justice and hope But in the meantime, I am still doing the majority of my shenanigans over on Twitter. I am doing my third reread, or I should say my my third read-through of 90 Superman. I am currently towards the end of the Fall of Metropolis storyline, which I love. I'm going through and doing brief synopses of every issue I read. I'm not only reading the Superman books, but I'm breaking down Superboy, Steel, the four-issue Supergirl miniseries. I'm going to be starting on Hunter Prey soon. I'm going to be starting on Zero Hour pretty soon. Um, yeah, and I, I, I love tweeting and talking about 90 Superman very, very much. Um, so if you want to get on some of that action... Check me out on Twitter, at About Superman. Um, I went on a little tantrum last week because Twitter was doing something stupid with how many people you're allowed to follow and how many tweets you're allowed to make per day. But apparently it was a glitch or something, or it was something they were test driving that they decided not to do anymore. I don't know, but I'm back to doing the majority of my stuff over on Twitter again for now. 
So next week, what are we going to do next week? Well, it looks like that I am going to do the next part of this two-parter in Action Comics. Excuse me. (laughs) So I'll do Action number 978, and then I'll double back around and start on the first part of the Black Dawn storyline in the eponymous Superman title with Superman number 20. And if I've gotten something wrong and I have to change it, don't worry. Time is fluid. Life is a flat circle. Something, something, something. (laughs) If I change it, I'll let you know. But anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about whatever it is I talk to you guys about because I love talking about Superman and I love talking to you guys. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love ya.